kids ages three and four, including kindergartners, so you can head to the back and, uh, and your teacher will take you up to your classroom. For the rest of you this morning, turn in your Bible to, to John chapter 21. John 21. We're going to look at the first 14 verses here this morning. John 21, 1 through 14. When you get there in your Bible, go back a little ways to the Gospel of Luke. Keep your finger in John 21 and go back to Luke chapter 5 and put your finger there as well. I want to reference that text with you this morning as well. John chapter 5, there's like I think the first 11 verses in John chapter 5, or Luke chapter 5, excuse me. John 21, Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there may be a few left on the back table back there. If not, there are a handful underneath the offering box in the back. Feel free to pick one of those up. Those ones under the offering box are our gift to you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take one of those with you today and use that to um, use that to read all about what God has said to us about who He is in His Word. Or if you're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with a friend, family member, coworker, neighbor, something like that, go ahead and grab one of those Bibles. You Use that as an opportunity. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the reality that giving a Bible to someone um, that you're sharing the gospel with may seem a little countercultural. It may seem a little strange to ask somebody to read through an entire book of the Bible, especially 21 chapters, uh, like in John's gospel, for the for instance. But God uses His Word to transform to transform human hearts. And so take that and prompt others who do not know Jesus to read through these things as well. John chapter 21, let me read the first 14 verses. Keep your finger there in Luke chapter 5, and we'll reference that shortly. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And when he revealed himself, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the, son of Ze- the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were, and the, and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land. What about a hundred yards off? When they had got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled in the net full of fish, uh, 153 of them. And although they were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. 
This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Before we get into things here, I want, to see, I want you to see the structure of John's gospel, at least the ending of these chapters. Remember, 18 through 21 represent the, the, the movement towards Jesus' crucifixion, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And now Jesus appears for a third time to his disciples on the beach. <clears throat> but a couple of weeks ago, we explored together John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which really mark the end of the gospel. So what I want you to think about, and if you've watched any like modern superhero films, you see uh, the, a culmination to the, the film, and then the credits roll, and then you sort of have like a mid-credit scene. You know what I'm talking about? A mid-credit scene that's teasing something that's coming in the future. Something that's going to come next. You're either introduced to a new character or the characters are interacting about something, something that's going to happen in future in future events. I want you to think of John chapter 21 as sort of a mid-credit scene in John's gospel. That John writes, now Jesus, in the, at the end of 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Roll credits. Now we get to the mid-credit scene and uh, black and then cut to the beach and or, or cut to, to this room where Peter tells his, his, his fellow disciples that he's going fishing. And then we have this unfold. This is the structure. John wants us to see that this is going to, what happens in chapter 21 is going to set up the, what happens in the book of Acts, although not written by John, but the church. The, the people to whom John was writing this uh, a handful of years later, probably like five decades later, uh, were fully embroiled in, the, uh, in the, the early church. They were part of the early church and John was writing this to them. And so they would have seen this narrative, Jesus as coming to earth, living the perfect life, saying these things, communicating them to his disciples who are following him, uh, being uh, tried, crucified, buried, resurrected, and now they're living in light of who Jesus is in the local church. And so here, how do we get from Jesus at the end of John chapter 20 appearing to his disciples uh, and post-resurrection Jesus appearing to his disciples to where they are in the church and in chapter 21 then operas, uh, op operates as a bridge between those two things. But this scene here uh, is centered around Peter. It's centered around Peter and his declaration, I am going fishing, and what transpires is what we see happen uh, with Peter. Next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we're going to focus on the very last section, verses 15 through 25. We'll focus on Jesus' direct interaction with Peter, but this morning, this setup and the, the way in which this scene unfolds in chapter 21. If you own a computer or a smartphone, you, you, uh, which you all do, I don't know why I said if, you're probably looking at it right now. If, if, when, because you own a, that's why I should have said that, because you own a computer and smartphone, then you know that you can customize like the settings on your device, right? You can make the text really big or you can make it really small. If your eyes are bad, you make it really big. But if, if uh, you can put a different wallpaper, like a picture of your puppy, that would be lovely. Or uh, you put shortcuts on this, on your, on your desktop or on your home screen on your phone so that you can quickly get to the apps or the, the things that you want to get to quickly. 
But sometimes you set things up on a device and then you realize very quickly that that's not the way that you want it. Like you get a new device, you, you set it up, and then you're like, this isn't working for me. It's not functioning for me. I want to be more productive with my setup. And so what you do is you go into the system settings on the computer or on the smartphone. And then in those system settings, there's an option to restore to default settings. To restore to default settings. And everything kind of goes back to the way it was. You don't lose anything that was on the device if you click the right one. But uh, but those settings go back to the way they were, and then you can kind of start over customizing what you want on your phone. Although it seems this seems crude to say this, but it seems crude to say, but people also have default settings. Uh, we have default settings, and usually they come through years of formation in your youth, or they come just because of natural proclivities or inclinations that we have. And just like the defaults on our phone or computer all aren't always in need of being changed, these personal defaults aren't necessarily bad. But the reality is that some can be, and can, some can operate or move us a direction away from where we should be going. Let me give you a brief example. If you're like, what are you talking about? Default settings, human beings, what? Uh, take marriage, for instance. When you get married, the Bible is clear. When you get married, uh, a mysterious transformation occurs. Those are literally the words that Paul uses. Paul in Ephesians 5, 29 through 32, this is a famous passage in Ephesians about marriage, he writes, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. In that passage, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, uh, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And he, then he points to the end of that verse, the one flesh union that occurs, and the two shall become one flesh. A one flesh union between husband and wife. Paul calls this a profound mystery. You're still two people, but how does this work? You're still you're still two functional, but one flesh. To go from two to one flesh has important implications. Uh, when you treat your spouse poorly, this passage tells us that you're genuinely harming yourself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. When you treat your spouse poorly, you're harming yourself. But we have a default setting. Because we, didn't, we weren't born married. We found someone, or we found somebody. And then, uh, and then we got to know that person. And then we decided to get married. And then the covenant occurs in a setting much like this. And then you become one flesh. But before that, all the way up, you were two fleshes. Two fleshes? You were two fleshes, and now you're one flesh. But our default setting is to go back prior to that covenant, to go to a place where we were two. Despite the fact that this mysterious transformation has occurred, going from two to one. So when you treat your spouse poorly, the Bible is clear, you're harming yourself. Our default setting, though, is to be self-centered. It's to be self-focused. 
Paul says that when you focus on yourself in marriage, you're negle- actually neglecting self. When we make a covenant with our spouse on our wedding day, when we say in sickness and health, till death do us part, and all of those things, a profound mystery occurs. Two become one. But then life starts back up post-honeymoon, and you find yourself looking for the restore defaults setting. It might be because there's something that's going on or a quirk that your spouse has as you're living together and the toothpaste and the tooth, all of those things. You might be looking for that default, restore default settings button. I know we're one flesh and I know the Bible says that's true about us, but I would like to go back to two in this area. And our current culture assumes that everyone has the, the right to go back to those things. This is one of the problems with marriage in our current cultural setting. We want to default back to who we were before we got married, whenever we desire. Much of our culture, marriage is seen as a formal cohabitation agreement in the eyes of the world. Why make the covenant if you have most, if not all, of the benefits of, of it without it? And you can then, if you don't make the covenant, retain that restore defaults button. And at the low cost of some legal fees, you can restore defaults through a simple no-fault divorce. But in marriage, the Bible is clear. Two become one, but all marriages suffer from moments where we try and act like two. We want to restore our defaults. But the marriage covenant means that you became and you were transformed into one. So going back to being two is no longer an option. When you act like you're two separate people, you're denying who you are. The Bible says you're harming yourself. You're acting contrary to what your true identity is. Everyone has these defaults. We want to move back into our default settings. And in this passage this morning, we see Peter attempt to restore the defaults of his life. But Jesus meets him. And so we're going to see two things in this text. The first thing that I want you to see is that Peter goes fishing. Simple. We'll talk about it. And then two, that Jesus comes calling. Those two ideas will guide our time together this morning. So first, think with me about the scene when Peter says, I am going fishing. Fishing is a pastime that we enjoy in North Dakota and the upper Midwest as a whole. Uh, Fishing can be a good thing to do. And if I told you otherwise, some of you would probably fight me this morning. That's okay. I'm not saying fishing is bad, but in this passage, fishing is not a good thing for Peter to do. Not because fishing is bad in and of itself or is an evil activity, but because this represents Peter's default. You'll remember what Peter's job was before Jesus called him to be a disciple. He was a fisherman. And when Jesus calls Peter for the first time, Peter just finished an unsuccessful fishing trip, very much like the one we read about in John chapter 21. So at this point, I want you to, you have your finger in Luke 5, go back to Luke chapter 5. This is the, uh, the, the initial call of Peter. In, in the Gospel of Luke. John does not record this event, but Luke does for us, and so we're going to benefit from it this morning. Just the first 11 verses in Luke chapter 5. 
On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the words of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners and the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled, the bo- and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so, were, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. At the end of this passage in Luke chapter 5, Peter leaves his boats and his nets and follows Jesus. But not before Peter told Jesus to leave him. Peter says, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Because of the event that occurs, Peter acknowledges Jesus as holy. He acknowledges him as other. He acknowledges him as set apart. Something about this man who just told me to go out after an unsuccessful night of fishing, to go out and to throw my nets back into the the water and pull in a huge amount of fish so that our boats were sinking, something about this set him apart. And this this acknowledgement that Peter makes when he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, uh, it resonates. It's reminiscent of an acknowledgement uh, of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. One of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal, and taken it with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then, he sa- then I said, Here I am, send me. The response right in the middle of Isaiah chapter 6 corresponds with the response that Peter makes when Jesus tells him to to go catch a bunch of fish. 
Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In both instances, both Isaiah and Peter acknowledge that they are unworthy to be standing in the midst of the Lord. Peter's eyes saw the King the Lord of hosts, standing before him. And he knew that his sin should prevent him from seeing what he was seeing and interacting further. So he says, go, go away from me. Leave me. Depart from me. But just like God calls Isaiah in Isaiah 6 to go, so he calls Peter in Luke 5. Peter, in this way, is a new kind of Isaiah. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God sends Isaiah with a message of condemnation. If you read that passage, he sends him with a message of condemnation for Israel. And Peter follows Jesus, not knowing that his task will be to call Israel to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But that comes comes in the book of Acts. Peter acknowledges Jesus as other, as set apart, as holy. And Peter knew that his sinfulness should, should prevent him from even interacting with Jesus any more than he already has. But just as God sends Isaiah and Isaiah goes, Jesus tells Peter to follow. And Peter leaves everything and follows Jesus. Or think again back in John chapter 21. Peter's a slow learner. In, in cha- this is the third time John is clear. This is the third time that he, did Jesus has appeared to the disciples. And Peter's been present for all of those. He's been present for all of the... And he, he's seen the resurrected Jesus two times in chapter 20. You think that would be enough, but here we are, on to a third. The first two encounters with the risen Christ didn't stop Peter from heading back to the boats and the nets, from going back to his default settings. Peter isn't sure what to do next, so he reverts to those default settings. He defaults from Peter, the disciple, the follower of Jesus, the one who has witnessed Jesus perform miracles, heard him teach, heard him even... uh, predict his own denials, he defaults to Peter the fisherman. And remember that Peter has just denied Jesus three times right before the crucifixion. We have no indication yet that there's any type of restoration or resolution. He doesn't feel like there's any resolution there. And that'll come next week at Easter Sunday in verses 15 through 25. Peter says, sinned against Jesus and that's where they stand. Surely Jesus doesn't want me anymore. But wasn't that his thought when Jesus called him the first time? He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Surely Jesus doesn't want me to follow him. And yet here we are again, a second time. If Jesus doesn't want Peter, then then Peter should go back to fishing. He should do his thing. He should live his life the way that he wants. He should make his living and he do, do what he knows. But Peter's assumption is a false one. 
He should not go back to fishing. Jesus plans to use Peter in a mighty way, even though Peter can't fully understand what that is yet. This is the danger of defaults. When you face difficulty and uncertainty in life, what do you fall back into? When you face difficulty or uncertainty in life, what do you fall back into? Do you fall back into the way things were before you trusted Jesus? Or will you continue to trust Jesus in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty? Christian maturity, growth in the Christian life, means that those defaults will become less appealing. God grows our faith so that we will continue to trust him even when we don't see a path forward. Instead of saying, I don't see a path forward, I guess I'll turn around and go back. Christian maturity says, I don't see a path forward. And maybe this path even leads to death. But I know that Jesus Christ has saved me, and I know that he knows the way out of the grave. Sometimes difficulty and certainty is big in our lives, like you get laid off work, or your car breaks down and is unrepairable, or you lose a loved one, or you find out that you have cancer. But sometimes the difficulty or uncertainty is subtle. This is where the danger really comes in. As a significant amount of self-reflection is required in these things. Many of these things might even happen today. Your wife asks you to do something you'd rather not do, take out the trash. You default to a grumbling attitude. Your husband doesn't do something that you want them to do right away. You default to venting with your friends at ladies' night. Your kids disobey by not cleaning their room, you default to shouting. Your coworker drops the ball on a project, you default to bottling it up and becoming embittered towards them. I can't answer the question what your defaults are, but the Christian life is the good news is that the Christian life is free of these things. It's not free of them in the case that they're not temptations to go back into, but they're free in the sense that they're no longer uh, uh, your default. Wherever you're tempted to revert, God has given you freedom from your sin. Whenever you are tempted to revert, God, know clearly, brothers and sisters, that God has given you freedom from your sin. Your old way of life has been crucified with Christ. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. Paul in Galatians 2.20 says it like this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now have in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Later in the Galatians, Paul warns them, the Galatians again, against going back to trusting their law-keeping as a source of their salvation. Their default was to say, how can I earn salvation by keeping the law? And Paul writes to them, uh, Jesus is the source of your salvation. He says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Going back to law-keeping as the source of your salvation is slavery. Going back and reverting to your defaults in this life is slavery. Brothers and sisters, you've been freed from these things. Don't go back. Peter here reverts. He goes back. 
He says, I am going fishing. But I want you to note Jesus' response here. Jesus isn't like, oh, come on. Are you serious again? That's how I would respond. But isn't it good news that, you're, that God is not created in your image, but, he, but you are created in his? That's good news. Because you, you would have been a total jerk in this instance. But Jesus is, is kind. He doesn't scold Peter. Instead, Jesus invites Peter to breakfast. That leads to the second thing that we should notice. The second thing here is that Jesus comes calling. Again, the scene that John records here in chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, is reminiscent of Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, when Jesus calls Peter for the first time. Again, you can see the parallels. We didn't really state them, but I'm sure you saw them as we read them. In Luke chapter 5 and in John 21, many things are similar. The disciples catch nothing after a night of trying. Jesus tells them in both instances to try again. Upon trying again, the disciples haul in tons of fish. But I want you to note how Peter's response is different from Luke chapter 5 to John chapter 21. In verse 7 of our text, John, he says, the beloved disciple, he's the one here who realizes that it's the Lord. Uh, Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And Peter throws himself into the sea. This time not to get away from Jesus, but to get to Jesus. He jumps in the water to go and greet Jesus. Contrast this response with his response in Luke 5, 8. From depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord to an understanding that if he were to be forgiven, if he were to be restored, he must run to Jesus and not get away from him. It's no mistake that Luke 5 and John 21 are so similar. Luke 5 is Peter's initial call, and John 21 is a second call to Peter, a patient Savior. A second call, a second chance. In Luke 5, Jesus tells Peter that Peter would be fishing for men. And in next week's passage, Jesus tells Peter that he will be a shepherd to Jesus' sheep. We'll get there next week. But there's another scene that we need to think about in relation to this one as well. So we've seen the the contrast, uh, the comparison and the the contrasting passages between Luke 5 and John 21. But then also, uh, we need to take into consideration, Jesus invites invites these, the disciples and Peter to breakfast. And that should drive our minds back to a scene earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And he does so with bread and fish, what their breakfast is here. 
Jesus multiplies two loaves or two fish and five loaves. In John 21, Jesus multiplies, so to speak, the number of fish that the disciples catch from zero to 153. Jesus has already had some fish and bread of his own because he's cooking it on, on the beach. But in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 culminates with this teaching uh, later in that passage. And through this teaching, Jesus communicates that he is essential for life and that Jesus is the sole source of satisfaction. Jesus is essential for life and he is the sole source of satisfaction. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You cannot have spiritual life apart from Christ. You cannot be spiritually satisfied apart from Christ. Any restoration of defaults, any reverting in your life to something that you previously were entangled in, will not provide you life and will not provide you satisfaction. Jesus invites Peter's and the other disciples to breakfast. And he does so without a word, but to remind them. The scene looks familiar. To remind them the time that he fed 5,000 people so that they would remember that their old way of life could not offer them eternal life and could not offer them satisfaction for their deepest longings. They needed to be reminded that Jesus is essential for all of it. Peter can't revert to his old ways, to his defaults. He can't be Peter the Galilean fisherman. He can't find life and satisfaction there. He and the other disciples must come to Jesus. They have decided to follow Jesus. So, just like Jesus calls Peter a first time, so post-resurrection Jesus calls Peter again. Peter can't go back. Jesus has something more for Peter. Now, I have to say this to you, to you this morning. That, again, it's not Peter's vocation. It's not his job as a fisherman. That's the, that, that's the thing. This is not a call for every Christian to enter into Christian ministry like the Apostle Peter. What this is, is a warning against reverting back to old ways of life, from traveling old paths that do not lead to life and satisfaction, but that lead to death and discontent. That's what this passage is about. It's not that he couldn't go back to being a Galilean fisherman, because being a Galilean fisherman was bad. What it is, what it does mean, is that going back to a Galilean fisherman meant that he was no longer in line with and in step with what Jesus had called him into. It was no longer in step with the life that Jesus had prepared for him that offered him abundant life and eternal satisfaction. Peter can't revert to his defaults and find life and satisfaction. He must follow Jesus. He must leave everything and follow him, and he must do it again. That leads us to a couple of concluding thoughts. Three, actually. Three concluding thoughts. The first is just a question for you. We've asked this question uh, in theory, but now think about it for yourself personally. 
What, dif- what difficulty or uncertainty are you facing that tempts you to revert to your defaults? You know who you were and how you lived before Jesus. Some of you came to saving faith very early in life, but you know your inclinations. You know your proclivities. You know how you're pulled. You know how, what tempts you. So you know how you were and how you lived before Jesus, or even early in your Christian life. And you know that God has saved you through faith in Jesus Christ. But when the going gets tough, you find yourself slipping backwards, looking for the restored default settings. You know what this is like. You think to yourself, why did I do this again? Why did I fall back into this again? Why did I move this direction? What difficulty or uncertainty are you facing that tempts you to revert to your defaults? It's always the pressure cooker that gets us. It's never when things are happy and never we're all moving in the right direction, we're all feeling good. It's when things go wrong. It's when suffering comes. It's when trial comes that we revert into these defaults. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Jesus has set you free. Maybe you're at odds with your spouse. Maybe that even occurred on the way here this morning. Maybe you said something that you shouldn't have said or something was said to you and you responded poorly. Maybe you're weary from an extended period of intensity at work. Maybe you're worried about the state of economy or the direction of the culture. Maybe a loved one is dying and you don't know what you would do without that person. Maybe the stage your kid's in has your teeth on edge. Maybe it's just the weather. (laughs) It's got you feeling bummed. You should have put the snowblower away a month ago. These are the pressure cooker situations. Those old ways, those defaults, really look appealing. They really look comfortable to walk back into reacting in the way that you did. You're like tempted to say, I can't believe my spouse said that to me on your way out this morning to someone else and slander them. Or you say to someone, my kids are just in this stage and we've been sick and it's just all over the place all the time. Those pressure cooker situations, those defaults look appealing. They look very comforting. And when uncertainty and difficulty happens, what do we do? When uncertainty and difficulty happens, what do we do? We grasp for control. And familiarity offers us, falsely, but it does, offer us control. In the midst of difficulty of a broken relationship, Peter went back to his defaults. He said, I am going fishing. Back to what he could control. He controlled the nets. He could fix them. He could toss them in the water. If he didn't pull anything up, whatever, we try again tomorrow. He needed to be reminded of the call that Jesus Christ placed on his life. And you and I need to be reminded as well. Your life in Christ is any better than anything the world has offered. And when difficulty and hardship come your way, and things begin to feel like they're slipping away, slipping out of your hands, don't go back. Don't go back to the old way of life. Look ahead to Christ and follow Him. 
look ahead to Christ and follow him. Uncertainty is difficult to live in. I hate uncertainty. I hate not knowing what the next minute, the next hour, the next two hours is going to bring. I'm sure that's true for many of you as well. In Luke chapter 9, verse 62, Jesus says this, though. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Don't go back. What difficulty and uncertainty are you facing that tempts you to revert to your defaults? The second thing this morning that I want you to think about as you go from here is that you'd hear the call of Jesus clearly. Like with Peter, Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is kind too and patient with sinners. He gives Peter and the disciples a second call. And that second call looks like the first. But Jesus didn't say, you guys didn't get the first go around. I told you to follow me. I sent you into the world with a message of forgiveness. And now you're back here fishing again. I'll just find somebody else. If you're a Christian, but you're actively ignoring God's directives for you, hear the call of Jesus clearly this morning. He's been patient with you. He's been kind to you. Sometimes Christians think that they're waiting for something specific, some specific revelation about what they need to do next. And sometimes the directives on your life are very specific. But, if you're not sure what those things are, all you need to do is know that Jesus is calling you into simple obedience to his word right now. Just everybody in this room can do all of these things. Well, most of them, depending on your stage of life. Loving your neighbor. Ask, how can I love my neighbor in the way God's word commanded me to love my neighbor? The lawyer in Luke chapter 10 gets hung up on the word neighbor. Don't get hung up on the word neighbor. It's the dude who lives next to you. It's just the person next door. It's the people in this room. It's the ones you're proximate to. How can you love the people in this room? How can you love the person next door? How can you love the person you share an offer with the way that God's word commands you to love them? Husbands, love your wives. Ask, how can I love my wife in the way God's word commands me to love my wife? We might have a lot of social psychology that we could, we could submit here, but how does God's word call you to love your wife? Wives, submit to your husbands. Ask, how can I submit to my husband in the way God's word commands me to submit to my husband? Not in the way that you think or when it's convenient, but how can I submit in the way that God's word calls me to submit to my husband? Fathers, take responsibility as the head of your household. Ask, how can I take responsibility as the head of my household in the way God's word commands me to take responsibility as the head of my household? Or said, like, my wife will take care of it. She's, she's got it under control. No big deal. Children, honor your parents. Ask, how can I honor my parents in the way God's word commands me to honor my parents? Employees and employers and entrepreneurs, work unto the Lord and not unto men. Ask, 
how can I work unto the Lord and not unto men in the way God's word commands me to work unto the Lord and not unto men? Not in the way that I think would be best, but in the way that God says is best. You may find yourself taking a bunch of those different examples that I just gave you, and you may be ignoring all of those things that God says about all of those things. But Jesus is patient. He's kind. Don't presume upon his patience. Don't presume upon his kindness and say, I'll go from here and I'll figure it out next year or in 10 years. When the kids are out of the house or when I have a little more money in the bank, Jesus is kind and patient with sinners, but don't resist the call of Jesus this morning. The very reason you're here, every single person, every single eternal soul that is in this place right now is here for a reason. It's an indication that Jesus is patient and kind to sinners. You're hearing this call to simple obedience. Stop looking backwards. Start moving forward. Don't go back. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian at all. Hear this. Jesus Christ died in your place so that you could move forward. So those defaults that are tearing your life apart could be put in the rearview mirror. You face a crossroads right now. If you have not trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and are walking with him every day, you face a crossroads. Your sin has separated you from God. Turn from your sin and trust Jesus fully for the life that you do desperately need. You do not have control of your life. Submit to the one who does. Come to Christ by faith and receive the new life that he, only he, can give. Hear the call of Jesus clearly. Finally, last thing this morning. Life and satisfaction are found in Jesus alone. Life and satisfaction are only found in Jesus. Don't be tempted to think that going back and traveling old paths will give life and satisfaction. Think about that as you eat your lunch today. The satisfaction that you feel from eating your lunch is pointing you to the reality that there is a greater satisfaction found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. Jesus invited the disciples to breakfast to remind them that trying to find life outside of him was futile. And trying to find satisfaction outside of him is futile. Where are you looking for life? Where are you looking for satisfaction? Jesus patiently reminds us that it is only in him. Friends, there, there's nothing more accessible to you this morning than Jesus Christ and the life and the satisfaction that he offers you. There's nothing more accessible. You can pull up your smartphone, order some shoes on Amazon. They'll be here by Thursday. Probably not. Next month, a week from tomorrow. That's a safe prediction. Instant access. Instant access. You don't have to wait for it to ship. You don't have to wait for the robot to pick it off the arm and put it on the conveyor belt. 
You don't have to be, you don't have to hope that it'll finally warm up outside. You don't have to wait for it to be back in stock. Life and satisfaction are only found in Jesus and are freely offered to you in this moment. All you need to do, and you can do it right now, is come to Jesus. He said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Don't revert to these defaults in the midst of difficulty, uncertainty, trial, tribulation, persecution. Do not revert to your defaults, but fall fully on Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these simple truths here this morning. That you've shown yourself, revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ, and that life and satisfaction are offered to us through him and him alone. God, this morning, as each and every one of us goes from this place, would you, through your word, help us to discern our errors? Would we not try and correct them ourselves? Would we not seek life and satisfaction in places under the place of Jesus or, and outside of Jesus Christ himself? But in our hearts this morning, would we run fully to him, fully acknowledging that apart from him we can do nothing? That there is no life, there is no satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ? God, you have been kind to us. You have been patient with us. God, would we trust you more? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.